Right, ladies and gentlemen, once again, welcome back to another great episode of the Rugby Rant Podcast Show with your team. My name is Ty Braga, your host for today's activities. And alongside me, we got Rob the Hammer Hammerschmidt. And for the first time joining us, our guest for today, what's welcome, Tony Ridnell. Tony, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ty. Thanks for having me, Rob. Really, uh, really appreciate it. It's clear you guys have done a great job with this cast. You know, the questions we were talking about before the show uh, indicates your level of professionalism is very high and your knowledge is very high. I'm very excited to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, we Thank certainly you. appreciate the flattery and it will get you everywhere <laughs> on the show. Now, Tony, you obviously have an interesting background of how you came to be a part of USA. You're a great advocate for, of course, everything USA rugby. But not only there, I mean, you also got deep roots in Seattle and Seattle Seawolves themselves. Yep. Why don't we give the floor to you just to be able to give us a little bit of an idea about who you are, what you do for rugby right now? Sure, sure. Great. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 59 years old. I was born in the early 60s and when in 1970 moved to Australia as a kid and uh, went to elementary school there in sixth grade. And it came time to pick sports. And, uh, you know, you could pick softball and, and swimming or you could play cricket and rugby. And I sure I decided, you know, just from a social standpoint to play cricket and rugby. Loved cricket. Absolutely love it. You're about uh, the only American I, 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 grew, I, I, grew, I grew to be 6'6", 240. So uh, rugby kind of was the way it, it, it went for me. Right. But I had the opportunity to play this amazing sport that, you know, when you're an 11-year-old American, you don't even know exists. And then you you get to you get to the sport and then you you know you're exposed to certain things that that just force you to sort of grow up and create some character in yourself we played a school called Newington College and that's from you know first grade to 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 high school Newington College and they wore black and white striped jerseys and i remember in my first game you know, we kicked off and then I had this just this kid coming at me. It was like twice my weight. I was just a string bean twice my weight running straight at me. And, you, you know, you're looking at yourself going, OK, this is the time to, you know, either grow yeah. up or or, 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 or or go away. And, and yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> put the tackle in. But that's rugby one on one. Put yourself in front of the whole character, <laughs> whole character build. It's the whole character building nature of the sport. And it starts, you know, at 11 years old. It started at 11 year old for me. It was wonderful, great experience. So I, I we moved back to to the United States, and I did the American sports, baseball, and uh, soccer and wrestling. But uh, uh, when I went to got to West Point, I uh, I picked up rugby again on the advice of my father, uh, and that was just uh, it. Just turned out to be a life changing decision for me. So uh, played it played in at West Point. Made my first representative team called the ERU under 20, under 23s. And we played at Saranac Lake, met some amazing people there. And that was my first touch of representative rugby. I didn't know, you know, like, you know, in, in America, we obviously call it all-star teams, but right. in rugby, we call it representative rugby. And, and the first time I got to meet people from Maine to Florida and representing the entire East coast in this tournament and their experiences and talking with them and, and 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 we just became friends in the first fifteen minutes, and it, it's no coincidence that rugby is the catalyst of that. Right. Because you have a common experience that that is is just so phenomenal. The the physical fact of being on the field, as well as maybe some of the social social parts of being in the bar, which makes this the sport so incredible. So it was that representative rugby experience, you know, at a very young age, twenty twenty one, 
um, that that when I found, that's when I found out there was a national team. I didn't even know until after I graduated from from uh, from college. So so uh, uh, that's how different the sport is. You know, that's how quickly the sport has evolved over however many decades. Um, so I, I was very fortunate. I, my first assignment was at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. I played rugby there for for Oklahoma University, which was great. Um, got to meet the likes of Larry Nafee and David Jenkinson, and John Bealey, some great guys. Um, and then moved to Hawaii uh, and uh, had the most amazing rugby experience there. Some guys on Facebook today were just po- posting photos of Kapilani Park, which is at the base of Diamond Head. And, you know, to be in the Army and to be able to, to, to utilize a social outlet like the Hawaii Harlequins rugby team uh, was just a phenomenal experience for me. And, and so playing, you know, all over Hawaii, we traveled to, uh, to the Monterey tournament every year couple of other trips, a couple of other overseas trips. We had players from all over the world. Michael Jones was, was on the team. Uh, oh, man. Oh, yeah. Uh, Alan Mexted from New Zealand. Pierre Delanga from South Africa. Just some phenomenal rugby, you know, well-known rugby players from around the world that we got to, you know, just kind of hang out with. And, and uh, uh, it was just great. And, and uh, the late John Wilbur, uh, who, who many people might know uh, the name, former uh, NFL All-Pro and, and uh, huge rugby advocate, Stanford University, mm-hmm. and, uh, and a general all-around crazy person. He, uh, he backed me um, more than, than I could ever thank him for. Presumably, <laughs> he backed me and to, to, to get over to the Junior Eagles trials uh, or the Eagles trials in 1985 for the Japan Tour. And I worked my ass off to get fit and stay fit and 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 the ball bounced my way and I got picked for the team. And, and I, you know, frankly, I was too young. I mean, you know, the first back row move I ever learned was when I was playing on the Eagles. I mean, you know, that's the, that was the state of the game back then. So, you know, a little left o eight nine. I mean, that, you know, that that, that was uh, that, that was uh, uh, serious technology back then. So um, so had a, had a, had an interesting, you know, not a great experience on my first Eagles tour. I, I was I was a little bit too young. I definitely was inexperienced, and it you know it was it was tough. And and uh, you know on that team there were probably sixteen players from the old Blues in San Francisco, all who knew each other. And you know so it was a challenging experience for me uh, as a very very young player. Um, but I, w- I was fortunate, you know, two years later to get picked up for the World Cup team in '87, and I played in the World Cup in '87 and '91. Um, and, uh, it, during those five, six, seven years was, was very fortunate to be a, to be a regular pick on the team and, 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 you know, was able to go on over 40 international tours and play in over 40 countries. And, wow. you know, it, it was, it was as an amateur athlete, phenomenal, just an incredible right. experience. Well, so, an incredible experience well, for anybody, Ryan. I mean, yeah. it's something we had spoken about just before we jumped on camera and, uh, just to let you know, there's a lot of people that are watching this live right now on Facebook <laughs> and uh, they are, you know, curious. Okay. We got Tony Ridnell on the show. Obviously he's passionate about what he does in rugby. You know, here's a guy that's got a business mind as well. Um, but you also are connected to Seattle and the Seawolves. So oh, I want to hand it over to Rob. He's got a couple of questions to fire you away in our familiar format of the run, pass, or kick interview. So to be yeah. able to remind you, uh, you and the rest of our viewers, if you're not familiar with this concept, run, pass, or kick gives our guests the opportunity to either run with the ball, which is to, of course, answer that question. To pass in it means that they'll simply sidestep that one and move on to the next. And to yeah. kick it 
means they'll be going, giving the opportunity to kick it back to one of us, myself or Rob, to be able to answer on the behalf of the guest to be able to give what we think he might say. Mm-hmm. So, Tucker, you understand the rules of the game? Great. No, that's right. That's, that's, you know, I totally understand. Let me just finish real quick. Um, so I finished my career, uh, I think the last the last test I played was 93. I was fortunate to play in the 93 Sevens World Cup, the inaugural, and was just a fan, you know, went to test matches down in Boxer Field in San Francisco and Chicago and, you know, saw a couple of Eagles matches, went to a couple of World Cups, went to the Hong Kong Sevens as a fan instead of a player, which is an amazing experience. And in 2015, I, I wasn't really that connected to the whole scene, but I, you know, always following, you know, the wins and losses and what was going on and who the players were and where they came from. And I went to the 2015 World Cup and I got, I, I went to the South Africa game and that was a, uh, a, a challenging day for us. I, I was very, I was fortunate. My business uh, was insured by AIG and AIG, of course, was one of the big all black sponsors. Right. But somehow my rugby connection got connected with AIG and they would, they invited me to a lot of their functions and it was just great. You know, it just. I mean, they go first class. They, AIG goes first class, and unfortunately, they're no longer as plentiful. They are all blacks, but um, they had a, 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 a hospitality, and I entertained some of the South African their South African customers. We went to the game, and of course, the United States had fifty points put on them in the second half. And by the end of the game, we had three or four players literally walking during the during the course of play. It was it was an incredibly embarrassing experience for me with you know, five drunken South Africans next to me, you know, patting me on the head going, you know. <laughs> <laughs> nice try. <laughs> the freaking giant will arrive, awaken one day, which is a term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, number one. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so I, I, I gave a call back to one of, uh, one of America's uh, uh, more prominent players ever. Who, and, uh, and he said, to, you know, and I was like, what the hell's going on with USA Rugby? What did I just experience? And he gave me a little bit of a background on what was going on in the leadership at that time and the, the vision and, the, you know, some of the things that were going on. And, and quite frankly, you know, the problems that we're having today didn't just happen in the last year or two. They, they were created over, you know, five and 10 years ago. Uh, and I'd be glad to discuss that a little later as well. So I'm glad to yeah. play a kick. But, but the bottom line is since that day, since that loss in South Africa, I've been very, very, uh, very, very heated about about you know USA Rugby, our place in the world, where we should be in the world, right? Um, you know, and and now, uh, hopefully, a little more evolved and, and a little bit less, you know, screaming from the rooftops. Uh, <laughs> you know, be able to pr- provide some 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 active participation, solution, and execution on some of these issues that face USA Rugby. So, right. so yeah, I'll, I'll, I want to pick up there because, um, you know, that's where I got the chance to meet you because of your passion brought you in 2018 to Chicago. Uh, and we met at a USA rugby function and, and, uh, just had a, a wonderful chat and, um, really been a huge advocate for yours. So I want to get into that a little bit and dig into your background and provide you with a little bit more, um, of a, uh, of a backdrop from which to tell your story. Uh, you. so uh, run passer kicking this first one. You are Eagle number 168 with the MLR moving along here, uh, but three and a half, uh, two and a half seasons going into, into three. Uh, is the pathway to becoming an Eagle easier today than it was in 1985 when you began your career as a USA Eagle? Well, I'll be glad to take, take that question. Um, 
and this again has to do with a little bit of how rugby structured in the country all the way down to club college and club. So way back in the day, you had, you know, clubs in various cities, two or three clubs, and then they would combine with a few other cities and that would create a local union. Uh, and then the local unions would, would, would merge and they would form a, a, a regional union. And then you would have, ultimately you would have the four territories, the East, yeah. West, uh, Midwest and the Pacific Coast Grizzlies. Right, the and, LAUs, right? That was when they okay. had the, or they, they started the LAUs. That was kind of the basis. Local for area unions, that's correct. So the local area unions then then merged, you know, uh, combined into the territories. Right. And then the territories had a competition over the Memorial Day weekend, uh, three games in three days, the most brutal rugby weekend ever, and so much fun and so enjoyable and uh, you know, the, the ITTs were just very special. Uh, and and it, it, by the end, it got to the point where there was college ITTs. And I don't know if they ever got to high school, but uh, j- just a fantastic experience. So you kind of knew what the pathway was. You played for your, your club and your local union. And then hopefully you made the ERU or the Grizzlies. And then, you know, you had a chance to shine in the ITTs when you played against your peers. Um, and they picked the team that way. And, and uh you know, so it was a pretty uh, systematic, hierarchical move. So I think today, I, I think back then, the pathway might have been more clear than it is today. And that's 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 a challenge. As I, as I say that, I haven't thought about it that much. You know, ultimately, you'd want the pathway to be the MLR, you know, right, right. just like the Prem is the pathway in for England rugby. And, uh, uh, you know, whatever competitions in other nations are those nations' pathways. Um, we obviously have a unique issue financially because our top players deserve to be making some money and the money's overseas. So, you know, we should still encourage players to go overseas big time. Uh, but at the same time, you know, really work in the background to create a, a, a legitimate partnership with the high performance portion of USA rugby, including all the coaches, you know, and get it, and integrate with, the MLR and talk about player development and player pathways. And, you know, we'd like to see this player at playing at 10 instead of 15 and making that a possibility rather than having it rather than having the MLR and USA rugby possibly having an adversarial relationship, which there of course is potential for particularly based on the history. Right. So let me, let me just um, kind of chalk back a little bit because you said some things that I think are really interesting to me uh, genuinely. And, and some of the folks out there uh, know that I have a, I have a son that, that plays rugby at Lindenwood, um, one of the really high-performance college rugby programs. Um, and so I've always perceived the MLR as, as providing a re- much more straighter pathway, certainly, Absolutely. than I was playing in the, late ni- in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, and to hear you say that you, you feel it was, it was much uh, more of a straight pathway, um, you know, when you were playing is, is interesting to me, not that I disagree. It's just uh, a kind of a little bit of a surprise. Well, you, at least, you at least knew, you know, you at least knew where you could go and what you had to do yeah. and, you know, who you had to play in front of and where, you know, where you be less options available to you. So yeah. there was only one route. Right. 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 <laughs> right. So, so, and, and you mentioned the MLR a couple of times. And so I want to I want to talk a little bit about that because I know you're a really passionate Seawolves oh, fan. Um, so run, pass, or kick, uh, and and I'm going straight to the hard ear, uh, going right for the dagger. As a diehard Seawolves fan, um, 
are the Seattle Seawolves fans the best fans in Major League Rugby? No question. I thought that was going to be hard. <laughs> okay, so let me no, throw right, it in. Right, right. Was that you would choose, what other team would be next to okay. them? Oh, well, there's no question. I mean, you know, San, what San Diego has done is phenomenal. Right. I mean, you know, they, they've – I would re- – I, of course, I, I jest a little bit. I mean, the San Diego fans are amazing. And, and uh, uh, we've had some great games down there. Obviously, the final last year was really special. Yeah. And then the right. first game this year was very special in which the Seawolves lost. Um, it's a great level of competition – on Absolutely. the field and off the field between the fans. <laughs> oh, totally, totally. You know, and and uh, uh, no, but the, you know, you walk into San Diego and they've got the Legionnaires there and the band right. and the Great food, culture. the food, and you know the weather. And then you walk and you look at this beautiful pitch, phenomenal. Uh, Seattle, diff- slightly different. It's taken San Diego a little while to come on. Come on. Whereas from day one, the SeaWolves thing was it just it just. It just, you know, combusted. It was like, and I remember I talked to Shane Skinner about this several times. Uh, the founder of the SeaWolves, you know, he was he he he'll tell you he was as nervous as he's ever been the morning of the first game because he literally didn't know what it would look like. You know, forget about on the field. What would off the field look like? Would there be right. fans? What would the fan experience be? Would people come back? A lot of uncertainty. Yeah. Unbelievable uncertainty. And I, I got to the I got to Starfire about three hours before the game because I wanted, you know, I do it every time. Want to take it all in. Love the experience of how Starfire builds people coming in and it goes from quiet to just um, but but I got but I got to I got to the got to the stadium about three hours before the game and I started asking people, hey, are you here for the Seawolves? You know. And amazingly so many of the spectators were there. They'd never seen rugby before. Like well over 50% had never seen rugby before, which blew me away. I thought we were only going to be drawing from the rugby community. And the common theme was, hey, this is a new professional sports team in Seattle. I don't know anything about the sports, but I, about the sport, but I love Seattle teams. And, and um, the, 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 the theme was just like, we're not going to lose the Sonics again. I mean, that got mentioned <laughs> three or four times. Like, like we can't – we have to cherish our professional teams. And this is the way that fan base treats the Seawolves. And it's just marvelous. You know, if you don't have a scarf – if you don't have a scarf at Starfire Sports, you look like you're the – you know, you're an imposing fan. Uh, and just the, the whole – just the whole thing has been phenomenal. Absolutely. So. So I, I think one of the things as an outsider looking in, uh, for those who watch, you know, people know that I'm a NOLA fan, um, but I watch the Seawolves and I know that there is a strong connection between the players on the pitch and the folks that are watching and, and uh, putting their rear ends in the seats and paying the gate. Uh, so here's what I want to know, run, pass, or kick as a, as a, again, a diehard fan. Who is your favorite player on and off the field for the Seawolves? Well, I will. I, I, I will take that because I guess only I can answer it. Um, on the field, I actually there. There's five, six, seven players that I just love watching. You know, Matt Turner at fullback. Uh, you know, former England sevens player, world class. He does things that you know you could watch the World Cup final and not see people do. You know, he's he's amazing. Uh, Shalom Suniula, amazing. Um, 
That would have been my guess. I would have gone with one of the Sony. Uh, no, yeah, just phenomenal. Like, like watching Shalom, forget about his offensive skill, but watching him track tackling on defense is very inspirational. You know, I mean, it's just just fantastic. But, you know, we've got Ricky, Ricky Hattinger, um, you know, uh, Brock Staller is amazing to watch. You know, I, I, I saw your show with Bill Webb earlier, and, and, and uh, I remember talking to Bill, like, how the hell is Brock Staller not on the not on the Canada World Cup team? Yeah, um, uh, they must have had a few few pretty good wingers and kickers to to, to beat him out. So so just a, you know a lot of great players on the team to watch on the field. Off the field, uh, the most kind, humble, accessible group of people. Just just it's the it's 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 what you want your sport to represent, like. You can be proud of all the players and the team and the community and the whole thing. It's just, it's just a source of real pride. It's wonderful. And, that, and, and quite frankly, that is absolutely driven by the, the, the team's leadership, Shane Skinner in particular. Uh, right. It's certainly a lot of people that are driving rugby forward through passion. And uh, that's really the fuel that fires all of the fans, uh, those that are involved. You know, we recently had an interview where somebody had mentioned part of rugby, even at the organizational level or as a management level or as a player level, you're first almost a fan of the sport yourself before anything else. Sure. And uh, we can see that in you, Tony. But I want to ask you as a fan and somebody who's, you know, obviously passionate about rugby in the U.S., having been a previous USA Eagle yourself, why are we in the position with USA Rugby that we are in right now? Now, to give fans a little bit more context to what I mean, you know, there's been some troubled news, some woes, financial woes for USA Rugby having recently filed for Chapter 11. You know, there's been obvious, uh, you know, issues there for, for yep. a while. You know, you can go back to the complaint about overspending for the last Rugby World Cup. You know, there could be a long list of things that put them in that position. We're going to go ahead and set that aside. Yep. We're going to focus on, okay, why are they where they are? We now know, but how do we fix it? And what are they doing to make those steps? Yeah, fair enough. Well, I think, you know, obviously I've had many, many discussions about this, this entire issue for many years now. Um, and it's my, it's my assessment that, you know, no one, no one has, no one involved has woken up in the morning going, you know, I think I'm going to do something today that's intentionally going to bring harm to our union and our sport. No way. You know, you look back to Will Chang and Chad Keck, two pretty well-meaning guys that were a bit, little bit out of their element in terms of the rugby space. I'm not talking about other spaces in, in business or life, but in the rugby space, their assessment of what, what was viable financially from a media perspective was completely unfounded and the, right. the opening of the rugby channel. And as that moved forward and more and more losses were incurred uh, and more and more contractual obligations became, you know, embedded in, in, in that disruption, uh, it, 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 it just, you know, and, the 2018 Rugby World Cup in San Francisco, the Sevens, right? Um, the contracts that were signed with the Giants for use of AT&T Park basically created a scenario where USA Rugby was a loser, no matter how successful. Yeah, it wasn't favorable from the start. And right, and so we've had 
years of sort of, I don't want to say necessarily mismanagement, but what I will say is, you know, I know from running a business, you got to be 24 seven in tune and you've got to be, you know, in deep, get down and dirty and personal with, with issues that are happening at your organization, your entity, particularly when there are financial troubles, you, you, you absolutely have to get on, stop the bleeding and figure out how you get your revenues over your expenses. Otherwise you're done. And and before the, the new regime of leadership at the staff that is now Ross Young as the CEO, uh, and, and, and you know, around Dan, around Dan Payne's time, who, pre- who, 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 who replaced Nigel uh, Melville and, and is the predecessor to Ross Young, right around that time is where all the, the financial you know, crushing crush happened. The, the, the Sevens World Cup. Uh, the 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 effects of the uh, complete lack of success and failure of the rugby channel, uh, which was integrated with USA Rugby's finance uh, financial picture. So Dan never really had a chance. And quite frankly, if you look at it, Ross Young probably never had a chance. You know, it just was too big a, a, a ship going down the going down the wrong path. Now that said, over the course of the past two years. I know a lot of the people in the Congress. I knew a number of the board members, had a lot of conversations with those people. Um, certainly, you know, I would just say that, that, that if it was my entity and my organization, uh, I would have done things significantly differently in terms of organizational effectiveness and internal and external communication, which I think is one of the major problems at the union, both inter- communication internally amongst their group and staff the simple process of having staff meetings that is, that is a normal, you know, organizational routine was not routine at USA Rugby and, so never, I, and never has been. So Which, let me let me yeah. jump in there, Tony, because I think you're kind of going in this direction. Um, I, I don't know that all the fans out there know or even people that even are huge Eagle fans. I don't know that they know this. Uh, and I want you to give it some context and then I'm going to sure. put a follow up afterwards. You've applied to run for the international athlete um, seat. You're, you're putting in a nomination. You're putting in yes. a bid. Yes, I have. Yeah. Okay. So um, talk a little bit about that and then enlighten the fans as to what, you, sure. you know, if you're, if you're able to represent uh, on the USA rugby board in that capacity, you know, uh, what are you looking to accomplish? What's important to you? Uh, what do you really, what are your goals and objectives? So sure. people know what you're going to do if you have that position. Well, I'm, I'm picking up the ball at the base of the scrum and running with this one. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't expect anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, so, so the the uh, the new structure of USA Rugby and and uh, as dictated by uh, from World Rugby and also the U.S. Olympic Committee, um, which I think is now the U.S. OPC, U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, U.S. OPC. Yeah. Um, has mandated certain things on how former athletes are involved in, in the unions for Olympic sports. So what's what's happened is we have a very a large in, international athlete council, which is made up of an equal number of men and women who are responsible to support, you know, the board's sort of wishes and, and desires, but also create some some context between what's happening with at the Eagle program and the union itself. And so there are 
there many of the players are within this 10-year window of playing their last World Cup or the, their last Olympics. But there's also some openings for uh, for people with white beards, for example, that uh, that might be a little older than 10 years past. Um to serve not only on the, on, on the International Athlete Council, but also on the board. There's one sort of slot. Out of the four International Athlete reps, there's one slot that is for a, uh, for a player that's over past 10 years from his last test. Uh, and that's the, the slot I applied for. There's several other very strong applic applicants, uh, several of whom are also have applied for the, an independent seat as well. Um, so there are four, four International Athlete board seats. There are four independent members that can come from don't even they don't even need to know the rules of rugby uh but hopefully hopefully will and, and more importantly understand you know the unique context of rugby and its financial challenges particularly in this country um uh so there's so there's uh uh you know the the the, the players they you've got the four independent reps and then there's three more board members that represent one each of the new councils that were formed, youth rugby, college rugby, and club rugby, community, right. community rugby. Right. So yeah, I've, I've, I've applied for one of the international athlete slots. And in answer to your question, you know, I think the first thing that needs to happen, the absolute first thing is, is we need to start engaging and creating some confidence in the, in the general American rugby public surrounding the entity USA Rugby. Right. There's a little bit of reputation done. Say again? A little bit of reputation repair to be done somewhat. The more trust to be built, as you say, with the rugby fan in the US and, well, not Canada, but the general rugby fan in North America. Yeah, just a scooch. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, I mean, no, seriously, you know, USA Rugby does not have a positive uh, uh sound around it. Uh, and, you know, and rightfully so. I mean, it, and people that now complain about that and are like USA rugby, this USA rugby, that we're not going to do this. We're not going to do right. that. You know, that's not going to help anything either. Right. Okay, there, needs to be, there needs to be a USA rugby. There needs to be an effective USA rugby. There needs to be a sustainable USA rugby. And for, for, for the reasons that, is so unique to our sport, and that is the aspirational portion of our game. Yeah. If you're a 10-year-old and you see in front of you the ability to represent your country in the Olympics in this sport, that might be the moment where you set your life goals for 12 years out to be a 22-year-old Olympian. You know, I'm sure I would have had I had that opportunity. You know, I'd seen it. Um, and I know there are people there are people that out there that, that are I mean, you know, and, and so uh, it's just so great that we have this Olympic opportunity for our sport. However, it's created a slight, you know, because it's sevens, it creates a, a lot of a lot of disparity around funding priorities. Uh, what's the real game? Where does the real money come from? And should we be funding, you know, a separate teams sevens and 15s and things like that and particularly as the COVID effect hits who knows what that the, the seven circuit is going to look like it might be retracted there might be a chance that that there are no more uh uh, uh sevens only players you know that right. what, I've heard, what i've heard is that world rugby is trying to 
in the creation of a global calendar, which is essential for world rugby and also to feed down to USA rugby, uh, with the advent of the global calendar, they're going to target in a few of those seven states that will that will that would allow you know the average 15s player like a Bowden Barrett or a or a or a or a, 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 a Farrell Owen Farrell to potentially play sevens. You know, Hong Kong sevens are on one of the tours. So because because there is rugby has grown so much so fast that it's actually liquidated the amount of funds that are available. And you've seen rugby literally failing all over the world financially. Look at Australia. You know, you think we're in trouble. Australia is in worse trouble. Super rugby has had to contract from 18. They just got out over their skis. They've had to contract in a big way. So there's huge contraction in rugby now as people try and create some sustainability around any, any and all financial models. You know, it's funny you say that because they, the New Zealand Rugby Union struggling in and of itself right now as well. And you'd think if there was a place where rugby would have would be on its strongest foundation, it would certainly one of those places would certainly be in New Zealand. Uh, I want to jump forward uh, on that note because you've talked about um, some important goals uh, that you have for USAR. And it's funny because I think just last week, some information came out of uh, New Zealand um, that uh, the USAR has begun to investigate submitting a bid for Rugby World Cup 2027 or 2031. Run, pass, or kick. Uh, what is the United States and the USAR ready to submit a bid for either of those two Rugby World Cups? Well, I, t- I told you, I, 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 there's not a microphone I don't like, so I'm going to run with this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm personally a huge advocate of attempting to host a World Cup in the United States. Um, one, it would literally force us to get it together. I mean, you know, there's no other option than to get it together and make it work and make it happen. And with that in mind, you know, you could draw, you, you know, if we had the World Cup, say 2027 or 2031, uh, if we had the World Cup, uh, that might draw in, that could probably draw in a whole different and new slew of potential sponsorship partners. Because I, be, I believe the, the statistic is that the World Cup makes about three or $400 million now for for world rugby and the host union profits has profited significantly. Right. And in addition to that, they reported recently that it increased the GDP of Japan by nearly $4 billion. Oh, totally. Spinoff in every direction. Totally. And don't think that rugby fans all over the world wouldn't want to come to the United States. I mean, you know, for all the reasons that people love to come to the United States. Um, So I'm, I've been a huge, huge, huge advocate of that. I mean, big time. Um, the the frustrating thing for me, you know, as we as we've just deteriorated organizationally over the course of the past two, three, four years, uh, is that you know that's th- those chances are probably uh, uh, slimming down a little bit for us to get serious consideration. Um, but I but you know certainly I, I know it's a topic of conversation, but I do not know you know if, I do not know at this time you know if there are people doing actual work to put an actual bid together uh, because. If we're going to, we're going to need to start pretty soon. Right. Right. And, you know, obviously there's a whole host of challenges that would need to be overcome to feel confident before you place a bid. You have to outline a proper business plan, have a strategy in place. 
And where rugby is in America right now, they first need to get their house in order and rebuild that foundation, as you so rightly pointed out before. And we actually had a conversation similar to this on our show back in episode six uh, among us. And I believe, Rob, you had said that, you know, you'd be surprised to see a legitimate bid at being hosted before 2039 even. So 2027 certainly would be an ambitious goal. 2031 could be a little more possible, but there's a lot of work to be done before then. Yeah. I think at this point, 27 is, 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 is a stretch. Yeah. 31, 31, much more realistic. Right. Um, uh, you know, don't, don't throw out the women's world cup either. I mean, it's a much smaller, right. event, much smaller event, but I, I was very fortunate to go uh, to the last one in Ireland for the final two weeks. It was yeah, I got to go with Julie McCoy, who was the former U.S. women's coach. It was like walking around London with Mick Jagger. I mean, like we couldn't go. <laughs> That's, the getting, getting, That's the way you do it, right? That's the way you do it. Global rugby people. It was really cool. But like that event, that event itself was amazing. I mean, the atmosphere at that semifinal and final of, of the Women's World Cup was as good, great an atmosphere as any I've ever been to in rugby. It was awesome. Right. Just awesome. And the quality on the field was incredible. And if, if you remember seeing those games, the U.S. was right in there with the with the Black Ferns and right in there. And, and uh, they kind of took us a little bit in the last 10. But but uh, but but I see a lot of opportunity for our women, you know, and, and winning things, winning trophies um, in, in a big way. Uh, that brings that brings up a whole new can of worms on, you know, funding and financing for women uh, equity, all sorts of things that that the new board is going to have to have to really address and attack big time, right? Because because if we don't, there's going to continue to be what's a growing resentment, I believe, uh, between various factions, uh, and we've got we've got to lose those resentments, create confidence in one another, and, and pull ourselves together. Big time. Right. We're all fighting for the same thing, and that's to make Absolutely. rugby one of the best sports in the United States. Like I said, Absolutely. a lot of passionate people that are working very hard, and because they do it out of passion, they'll work twice as hard as anybody else. <laughs> but let me ask you, as we bring it back for our final thought here, you know, we look at USAR, we know what they could have done better, we understand that they need to be doing better. I want to kind of use that to frame the next question and ask you, with all the success that Major League Rugby has had, I mean, it's really the first legitimate professional league. Uh, you know, obviously, its first iteration with pro rugby was unsuccessful, didn't even last one season. So in comparison, the MLR is a great success. But what can they do better? What can the MLR do better? Right. That's a good question. You know, I, I think I think – I think the one thing that MLR could do better, and this is something that the Seawolves focus on big time, and I know San Diego does, but you got to fill those stadiums, no matter how big they are, how, no matter how small they are. We have to create community. And, and that's one of the things that I would try, you know, one of the things for me about, about moving test matches all over the country is that there's no community surrounding the USA Rugby Eagles. It's like a traveling right. show, right? right. So, Fair point. So, so, you know, you get a couple thousand people going here, you get a couple thousand people going there. Now we have this very unique uh, partnership with Glendale uh, where we where we're guaranteed a couple, three games of men and women, I believe, over the course of the next. Sure, and, you know, I would really hope that, you know, that Glendale community, we could figure out how to fill that stadium to the brim for every Eagles match. And even though it seats only three, four, five thousand, not have one empty seat in the house. 
Hopefully we could generate a profit. You run some auctions, you run some social events through that. Create that community around the Eagles. We have a unique opportunity because calling Glendale home uh, allows us to do that. It's going to force us to do that a little bit. And in but the a, absence an unbelievable of race. Raptors, it makes yeah. sense to fill that space because there's rugby-hungry fans there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, of course, you know, the, the, the timing of the announcement about the, the, the defunding of the WPL team and the, the, uh, le- the, the, the deal signed with USA Rugby was very poorly communicated by all parties. The For timing sure. was terrible. Created it has created and continues to create tremendous, you know, nothing short of animosity. Yeah. Uh, all of which, all of which could have been prevented with you know a better communications vehicle and a little more transparency on you know what we're doing and why we're doing it and who we're doing it with. There's you know right. rugby. This isn't nuclear science. You know. What I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, for sure. A lot of passionate people, though, and that passion can boil over in a positive or a negative way. No question. No question. <laughs> and, and, you know, for sure, I, I know on the, on the MLR fan zone that uh, Ty, Ty was engaged in an interesting conversation. There were a lot of uh, female rugby players that and fans that were kind of upset uh, because fan, uh, sorry, Ty has close ties to Glendale. Um, and he sure. wasn't he wasn't defending the move to defund, you know, uh, uh, women's their involvement in, in the WPL right. or whatnot. All he was doing is trying to explain what they were trying to accomplish as an organization. And, and right. again, going back to your point, you know, perhaps that mismanagement of the communication really led to a lot of angst and irritation, and particularly in the women's rugby community, which is so vital, as you point out, our Eagles, you know, they're a successful program. And I've always said that, you know, just as the women's soccer program has really elevated soccer in this country, I think far more than men's has, you know, the, the women's Eagles are really in a position to do Absolutely. the same because, you know, they're knocking on the door. I think they're ranked five or six right now. So Absolutely. they have the potential to really elelevate uh, the USAR. Right. Um, yeah. You were world win a couple of pool games in the Olympics and then and then right. and then and then win a semi, you know, win right. a semifinal and, and, and you're you're meddling, you know, and, and right. you got a lot of young ladies and men, you know, going, what's right. rugby? Absolutely. Well, like you said, Tony, you said, you know, one of the things that need to focus on, not only for the MLR, but rugby in general, is to put more bums in seats. Okay. <laughs> well, people like winning teams. Uh, people like sponsoring winning teams. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So absolutely agree with you You're there. And I think that as we stand, we've covered a lot of great points the other gentlemen. And Tony, I wanted to be able to take the opportunity to, again, thank you for joining thank us you. here on the Rugby Rant podcast show. Uh, you definitely did run with a lot of the ball today. <laughs> we like that. Um, but, you know, Scott, and, and in, on his behalf, and of course for Rob and myself as the host, Again, we thank you for joining us. We hope that you had a great time. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with our viewers? Well, I do. You know, one, you mentioned Scott. I had the opportunity to mention, meet Scott at, uh, at an MLR event um, uh, that I traveled with the Rugby 100 Club. I just want to put, put a little pitch in for Graham Oliphant and the Rugby 100 yeah. Club. For all MLR fans, Graham has put together uh, and Dickie, Dickie Martin have put together a program where you know, MLR fans can travel to other, other events, other venues. Right. As for the rugby game, but go as a touring party. And so I've been fortunate to go on two or three of those, New York, uh, Glendale, San Diego. Uh, and we just had, just have a great time. It's a great group of people. 
you know, you're, th you're there, you, you make some noise at the game. You know, when we walk into San Diego with 150 strong, you know, it gets some attention. So sure. that's been great. I just want to plug uh, the Rugby 100 Club. If Absolutely. anyone has an opportunity to support that, please and do. And another great point about the fan culture, not only at Seattle, um, but, you know, across the league, we would love to see that same energy, uh, that same platform to be able to share the game and to take that energy. If you can bottle it and bring it with you, what a great package, right? Absolutely. No question. Guys, thanks for doing for what you do for rugby and continuing to drive the sport. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Tony. Next time you show up in Chicago, you give me a shout, man. We'll sit down and have to uh, Good, man. And we'll we'll talk with rugby all night. We'll thanks, do it. Zach. We'll do it. Thank you. Thanks, We're here to be able to talk about rugby. And if you have been watching this episode of the MLR Rant podcast show, make sure that you let us know what you think about what we had to say by dropping a comment down below. And of course, don't miss our upcoming relaunch into the Rugby Rant brand that will be coming up this September. Make sure that you like, share, and follow us on our page. And through social media, you can follow us on the Rugby Rant pod. And of course, we'll see you at the next one from myself and the gang. Thanks for watching the Rugby Rant podcast. Thank Cheers. you guys. Cheers.